Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Every year on my birthday since about fourth grade, when my birthday cake is brought out and I blow out my birthday candles, I have thought I wish for my mom to get better. All these years later, that's still what I wish for every single year. My mom has dealt with chronic pain for her entire life. And there were some years as I was growing up that she was in bed with the lights out with a violent migraine for half of the week, every single week. And she's also suffered from back pain, jaw pain, and stomach pain, among a lot of other things. And her doctor's inability to help her, despite their best efforts, was a huge source of discussion and anguish in my house as I was growing up. So when I heard the title, Unwell Women, I knew that this was a book that I needed to read and that we needed to add to our reading list. And then I knew immediately who I wanted to read it with me, and that's Cassie Christensen from my master's program. So I'm super excited to be discussing this book and to welcome Cassie to our show today. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you, Amy. It's really a pleasure to be here. And what a touching story about your mother. Yeah, it's sad. I was actually just at her house this morning and she, yeah, her whole entire life, she's just suffered with chronic pain and it's gone up and down from time to time, but it's really, really bad right now. And she's she's not even elderly yet. I mean, the, it, the severe, severe back stuff and the head stuff started when I was little when she was young. So it's it's been really hard. So this book really meant a lot to me. Well, just to introduce listeners to you, Cassie, we met, like I said, in our master's program, and we met in that famous class now, because I've mentioned it so many times on many different episodes on the podcast. It was the class on international women's health and human rights taught by Anne Firth Murray. And I so appreciated all of your comments in that class, Cassie. You, I think you were the only one in the class that worked in the field of healthcare, right? I, I always remember you talking about the public health angle and the um, like the medical angle of things and bringing such richness to the conversation and things that I never would have thought of. And I just respect and admire you so much. And I'm so grateful for the wisdom that you're bringing to the book today. So I'm so happy you're here. And well, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love it if you could just start out by introducing us to you, who you are personally, where you grew up, and some things about yourself. Well, as you said, I do work in healthcare. I'm a therapist working in pediatrics and maternal health and an inclusion specialist. But like you, I also went back to school and graduated from Stanford with a focus on the history of medicine. And we met there in her class. And global women's health is something that is a subject I'm really passionate about, and it's what much of my own writing focuses on. While my research is mostly history of medicine, especially women's health in the early modern period in France, I also talk and write about this alongside covering current research in both pediatrics and maternal health. And I'm working on an exhibition that will be at Stanford in the fall of 2023 on women in science and medicine during the Renaissance. Well, I've been on the West Coast here happily for a long time now. I actually grew up in Florida, living for quite a while on this tiny island of Key West. So my family are originally Midwesterners, and they came from strong Scandinavian roots. So I'm a mix of that and the Latin culture that's really prevalent in Florida. And now I'm also French through marriage and raising three bilingual, bicultural boys. 
Okay. Well, one other question that I like to ask my reading partners is just about the term breaking down patriarchy and what that means to you. Well, I have to say I'm very interested to and excited to be on this podcast with you today, both as a fan of your own work exposing patriarchy and as a feminist who sees the difficulties in the history of women's health as being largely attributable to patriarchy. Much of my research has been searching for moments of collaboration and exchange between medical women and men. And honestly, it's been very hard to find. So my writing is often unpacking the hows and whys surrounding the early modern masculinization of work that's been largely done by women. Women's sexual Mm. and reproductive health was women's work in the beginning. So I think this subject is uh, very important to talk about today and especially about what happened historically. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Cassie. That's great. Okay, the next step is to introduce our author, and I'll read just a little bit about her. Her name's Eleanor Cleghorn, and she has a background in feminist culture and history, and her critical writing has been published in several academic journals. After receiving her PhD in humanities and cultural studies in 2012, Eleanor worked for three years as a postdoctoral researcher at the Ruskin School of Art at the University of Oxford on an interdisciplinary arts and medical humanities project. She now works as a freelance writer and researcher and lives in Sussex, England. And her own pain and other symptoms were dismissed for seven years before she was finally diagnosed with lupus. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later, but that was kind of the catalyst for her to do this research. And Eleanor Cleghorn, I should mention, is British. She's English. Um, I heard her interviewed on NPR. She was talking about this book, and she's just a gorgeous writer. I thought her writing was so clear and so beautiful, and she's equally articulate as a speaker. And I'm a huge fan now after having read her work and and heard her. So, um, So let's dig into this book. It's a very long book, but again, I found it really, really readable. And we'll just take turns. I wish we could tackle more of it because there was just so much really compelling information. But as always, we'll just choose a few chapters and a few subjects to highlight, and then we'll hope that lots of listeners will actually read the book and and get everything that Cleghorn had to say. So I think, Cassie, you're going to start us off with the introduction. Is that right? Yes. So I really think that throughout much of history, a woman's worth depended on her having children whether it was through forging alliances and producing heirs, continuing the family line, or producing children to assist their parents in the fields or household. And within a society that viewed reproduction as the primary role of of a woman, medical men reduced women's illness entirely to being attached to their reproductive organs. And throughout this book, Cleghorn often brings us back to this very point. As a feminist cultural historian, the author really exposes gender biases as she looks at the history of medical disparities through the lens of gender. And I noticed that there's this fascinating side-by-side description of medical history and the women's movement, all the while exposing this bias in medicine. So I wanted to start off with a quote from her. 
well, two quotes, actually. She says, medicine has inherited a gender problem. Medical myths about gender roles and behaviors constructed as facts before medicine became an evidence-based science have resonated perniciously. And these myths about female bodies and illnesses have enormous cultural sticking power. Today, gender myths are ingrained as biases that negatively impact the care, treatment, and diagnosis of all people who identify as women. And I think as we as we go on, both you and I are going to talk about this even from personal perspectives. There's really no woman out there that could uh, dispute this quote. Mm-hmm. Another quote I think is a very good example of a particular condition that that shows this bias. So she says, endometriosis, a chronic, incurable disease whereby endometrial tissue grows and spreads in other places in the body, is an object lesson in male-dominated medicine's historic failures. This disease was named in the 1920s, but it has existed in medical literature for centuries. Across those centuries, so many punitive fictions and fantasies have been projected onto women's blood and pain. Its symptoms, including excruciating pelvic, back, stomach pain, pain during sex, and heavy bleeding, have an extremely long history of being pathologized as physical expressions of emotional distress. In the 19th century, women's pelvic and abdominal pain, as well as their menstrual derangements, was met with aggressive, butchering surgeries, hysteric accusations, and spells in asylums. Today, women are frequently dismissed as neurotic, anxious, depressed, hypochondriac, and even hysterical when they report the early symptoms of endo. For too long, menstrual and gynecological pain has been minimized as the natural and inevitable consequences of being female. Yeah, that quote is devastating for me. My, that's actually one thing I forgot to mention that my mom has struggled with. And I have actually multiple friends that I could think of when I read that in the book that have endometriosis and have really suffered with it. It's just been debilitating and so disruptive in their lives. And and I just grieved reading that, that it's not better understood to get them some relief from that that terrible pain. And and Cassie, we, we should mention too, because I for listeners who haven't heard about endometriosis, the endometrial tissue is tissue, is it the lining of the uterus? It's like the inside of the uterus that then grows outside the uterus, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And terribly painful, I, I understand. Right. And this leads us to another quote that I think is very important. Clayhorn says, speaking out about your own body is profoundly feminist. It is generous and courageous to revisit and recall the trauma of pain and a radical gesture in a culture skewed towards doubting and disbelieving women. It's a risk, but at the same time, it is an act of defiance against those power structures in the man-made world that would prefer us not to speak. Okay, I have a, com- I have a comment about that quote too, Cassie, if I can throw it in. That was yes, a... Just a really powerful quote to me when she said, speaking out about your own body is profoundly feminist and and talking about how it is risky. And throughout the book, there are lots of examples of men who 
kind of demonstrate what she just talked about that there you know men want women to be silent and there are men who have violently abused and silenced women and we'll talk about some of those stories of misogyny but Cleghorn also mentions the softer side of patriarchy and where men are not doing it on purpose they're doing their best they love the women in their lives but they just don't know better and 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 actually i mean the fact that men and women themselves were ignorant about women's bodies was because religious patriarchy had taught women to be so ashamed of their bodies and so embarrassed that they couldn't talk about them and so there was really no way that men could know about women's bodies right because they weren't allowed nobody was allowed to talk about it and so in certain cases it's kind of not the man's fault. And so I loved that point that she says, it's a, an important act to talk about it. And if I can share a, um, a personal example of this, which is like, I'm, I'm doing this very profoundly feminist, courageous act because I'm like, I have this embarrassment talking about it. So I'm going to be brave and share this embarrassing story. Okay. So I just went on a really long, it was an overnight hike with my sister and my dad in Utah in the mountains. And Right before we left, like I knew I was on my period and ever since I had my fourth baby and probably just because I'm getting older, I do tend to have like very, very heavy periods. Again, this is like not comfortable for me to be speaking this into a microphone, (laughs) but I'm going to share it. Um, You could do it. I can do it. But and in my family, like my dad is just extremely proper and – he would say refined. And so we don't talk about bodies in our family. And he definitely is uncomfortable around anything female. He has four daughters, but we do not talk about it in our family. Well, I was worried because this was an overnight hike. And I, okay, I, we're talking about medical stuff. So I'm just going to say it like, we're talking like blood clots, very, very probably, I do actually need to go to the OB. Super, super heavy bleeding. And I was doing okay. Like I brought out all the supplies I needed in my backpack and stuff. But as we were getting up to really high altitude and we'd been going for a long time, lots of hours, my legs just started to shake. And it was a really technical part of the climb where we're kind of on all fours. My dad's like awesome. He's in such good shape. And we're like going over these, we're kind of bouldering up to the top of the mountain. And I just started shaking and I'd eaten plenty of protein. And I I just thought, I... I think I've lost so much blood. I started to feel really weak and lightheaded. And I I thought, I don't think I can summit because I was afraid I was – like it was kind of technical. It was dangerous. If, if I fell, I could have like gone down a cliff. And I couldn't tell him, Cassie. Like I couldn't just tell him what was going on with my body. And I just think back to that and think, I wish that I had said, hey, Dad, I want to share – what's going on in my body. And I watched him in his man's body, like just not even knowing that that could possibly be happening to anybody or me at the moment. And I just thought it's not his fault. He was, he would have been so uncomfortable that, and that made me uncomfortable Mm. and it wasn't his fault. He was taught that way. And then I was taught that way. But what I thought was, I do not want to pass that along to my kids. And so I have to be willing to break that cycle. And so I, when I read this, after that hike, I thought, you know what, the next time like that I have an opportunity like that, 
where something that actually is impacting the situation is happening, I'm going to speak out and I'm going to tell myself speaking out about your own body is profoundly feminist. And I'm just going to be able to withstand, I'm going to tell myself I can withstand my own and whatever man's embarrassment because that is an assertion that a woman's body is nothing to be ashamed of. And I wouldn't have been embarrassed if it was like, my ankle is broken, I can't hike, but I couldn't talk about my uterus. And so that's one of the themes that will keep coming up in the book. And this is going to give me strength to do better next time. Mm, that's that's such an important story to share. And uh, I'm just amazed at how many of us have similar stories. And throughout history, women have kept these things to themselves within the family, uh, within their community, but also with their own doctors. Mm. That's that's one of the issues that we'll read about this, this relationship between a male and a female was not comfortable enough to share something that we still today might not even feel comfortable sharing with our own father. So it shows how deeply that's ingrained in all of us, men and yeah. women. And yeah, thank you for sharing that with Sure. Yeah, that was, I might have major oversharer's remorse afterwards, but I'm gonna, I'm pledging to keep it in and not edit it out afterwards in case it helps some listener who might have similar struggles. Okay, so the next part we wanted to highlight is chapter one, and we're each going to share a part. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to read kind of a long section because it's so well written and it it's kind of foundational, right? It's it's from ancient Greece, and we've talked about ancient Greece several times on this podcast. But this is specifically as it as it impacted the formation of you know the field of medicine. So I'm going to read the beginning of chapter one, which is titled "Wandering Wombs." On the Greek island of Kos, many centuries ago, a girl was taken ill. At first, she felt strangely weak; her chest heavy and tight. Soon she began to shiver with fever. Pain gripped her heart. Terrifying hallucinations swarmed her mind. She was found wandering the streets, so consumed by heat and hurt that she wanted to end her life. Throwing herself down a well or hanging from a tree by a noose would have been pleasant compared to the torment that racked her body and mind. Her father called for the physician, a man trained in the arts of healing. The physician had seen this illness before in girls who had started to menstruate but hadn't yet married. As they developed into puberty, their plentiful female blood had been used up by growing. Once they had grown into women, all that extra blood accumulated in their wombs, ready to spill out every month. All physicians knew that this was how the female body stayed healthy. This girl was drowning in her own blood. It had no way to flow out, so it had traveled from her womb back through her veins, inflaming her heart and poisoning her senses. The physician urged the girl's father to marry her off without delay. Intercourse would open her body so her blood would flow out, and pregnancy would make her healthy. In another home on the island, an older married woman was seized by a violent convulsion. Her eyes rolled back. She ground her teeth. Saliva foamed in her mouth. Her skin was deathly cold, her abdomen wrenched with pain. Her husband called for the physician. This malady often befell women of her age who had stopped having sex and bearing children. He watched the woman writhe and sob and noted that her skin was clammy. The woman's womb, empty and dry because it wasn't being filled, had crept towards her liver in search of moisture. 
From there, it had blocked her diaphragm and robbed her of breath. The woman was being suffocated by her own womb. Soon, the physician hoped, phlegm would flow from her head to moisten her womb and weigh it down. The physician listened to the woman's belly for the gurgling sounds of the womb returning to its rightful place. If it lingers too long near her liver, she will choke to death. If she had only been having sex regularly, she might have been spared this misery. Okay, so these stories are from an ancient Greek text called the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a collection of medical treatises attributed to Hippocrates of Kos, who is the ancient Greek physician known as the father of medicine from the classical era. And this is from the 4th and 5th centuries BCE. And everyone knows Hippocrates because of the Hippocratic Oath, which is what you know, doctors who are graduating from medical school and starting to practice, they still take the Hippocratic Oath. So I'll read just one more little bit from this chapter, and then we'll dive into discussing it. Hippocrates emphasized how women's bodies and illnesses needed to be dealt with very differently to those afflicting men. He stressed how important it was for physicians to learn correctly from a patient the origin of her disease by questioning her immediately and in detail about the cause, which is great, right? I mean, that's better than I expected, to be honest. But um, and it's and it's really important. And we read also the book Invisible Women about data bias and how like you can't treat a woman's body like a man's body because they're so different. Um, but th- there's also a problem because she says, "quote Hippocrates was not exactly championing women's right to body autonomy and informed medical choice. The Hippocratic Corpus was written at a time when most women had few, if any, civil or human rights." In the patriarchal social order of ancient Greece, girls were the properties of their fathers and women of their husbands. They had no ownership over land, property, money, or even their own bodies. They were seen as weaker, slower, smaller versions of the male human ideal, deficient and defective precisely because of their difference to men. But in their difference, women possessed the most useful and mysterious organ of all, the uterus. Since their sole purpose was to bear and raise children, women's health was entirely defined by their uteruses. And that's the end of that quote. But I thought it was worth reading the whole thing because it it just encapsulates so much. So that's so much to unpack in that that quote. Um, Certainly Hippocrates influenced, in particular, the treatment of women for a very, very long time. This was one of the main writings that um, that stood there up until about Galen's time. And it is interesting that he saw women so differently. But in that idea of looking at women's bodies as being different, of course, it's that they're inferior. Mm-hmm. And differences allow for us to blame blame things all on the uterus is what what he did, because that's something men don't have. Uh, And it was seen as an inferior part of the body. So it it wasn't particularly helpful to the treatment of women for a very long time. Um, Yeah. And that diagnosis too, like it just like gutted me, which is why I chose to read that whole section. But the two examples of the young girl and like, well, if it's a problem, it must be coming from her uterus. So what's the, what's the, um, the solution sorry. is more, yeah. more, more sex, <laughs> more sex with her husband, marry her off, more sex, get that, get a baby in that uterus. 
And then for the older woman, too, who's probably menopausal age, what's the problem? She's not having sex. She's not childbearing anymore. So she's like lost her value in society. Oh, it's so... Yeah. It is just so very male centric, right? Exactly, and we see we see symptoms that we could say now were epileptic seizures or mm. uh, complications of pregnancy. All of these things—it's a little easy to read into it what we might think those symptoms were into a modern right. diagnosis that they didn't uh, weren't experienced with at that time. But the solutions right. kept coming back to surrounding the uterus and the sexual and reproductive system? And the answer was yes, to put them into use. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's a lot to unpack there still, but I think we'll leave it at that. Yes. And then I'd like to share a quote from this chapter as well. Cleghorn goes on to, to talk about that medieval Christian moral law forbade Medici or medical doctors at the time, from physically examining any woman. The female body was shrouded in secrecy and shame, and not only to the eyes and hands of male physicians. Women themselves wouldn't have dared reveal intimate detail to men about what was going on in their own bodies. Some medical writers at the time echoed these sentiments, including one who referred to a woman's gynecological complaints as her disgrace. Hippocrates and later Pliny the Elder thought menstrual blood could make men ill, ruin crops, kill bees, and drive dogs mad. So this is an interesting quote. And in addition to the poisonous powers they attributed to impure menstrual blood, this ability to make men ill and such, This concept of shame really permeated much of what is said about women's health problems historically, even in the anatomical vocabulary used in these writings. Take, for instance, early modern French medical texts. They would divide women's organs into two two types. You have les parties nobles et les parties honteuses, which means there were noble parts, such as the brain and liver, Or in the case of her sexual and reproductive organs, there were the shameful parts. Mm. This feeling of shame was so deep, it was in the language itself. Mm. So most physicians rarely interacted with women's bodies. They had to rely on a woman to self-report her problems if she felt comfortable enough to do that. And they certainly left the manual work to midwives, or in the case of birth emergencies, often to male surgeons. Cleghorn highlights that these myths set the stage long ago for medical disparities which continue to affect women today, and even more so women of color. I myself had a meeting with a physician recently wanting to determine if some symptoms I'd been experiencing could be GI-related or something closer to asthma. And this was a male doctor. He spent quite a bit of time sharing his viewpoint on what I explained to him but nearly no time examining me. And in the end, he explained, I don't, he says, I don't really see the point of conducting uncomfortable tests that would be necessary to really rule out one diagnosis or the other. And instead, he proposed to me, asked the question, if I might be experiencing anxiety, because Mm. that might be the cause of my symptoms. 
So while this is a legitimate question to check on, I don't think it should have been his first question in this situation. And he should have offered me this, the standard tests to, to rule out one diagnosis or the other. And I really question how he might have approached this situation differently were I a male patient. Mm-hmm. And then again, what if I had been a woman of color? Would would it have been a, a different uh, set of questions and treatment altogether? Mm-hmm. And this is this is currently what's mm-hmm. still permeating our medical system. This is I a just, small thing, but it's still going on. Yeah, I, I, and I just hearing that, Cassie, I just cannot imagine that he would have asked your husband that he would have responded the same way. You know, like to say, oh, might it be anxiety? I just I just don't think he would have. And then to say like, oh, there are these tests, but I'm not going to examine you and I'm not going to do the test because they're uncomfortable. What? Because you're like such a like fragile little flower and you can't handle it. I mean, I just don't think that he would have. I think he would have been more rigorous had it been a man there. Uh, I'm afraid to say I think so, too. That's that's yeah. exactly why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. But as as Cleghorn goes on, we we start to have more and more problems with these types of scenarios. Another quote that I thought was interesting, she says, by the 14th century, women physicians were prohibited from practicing professionally across Europe. Even when medical men were forbidden to touch women's bodies, it was male-authored knowledge that determined how they might be healed. So there's a couple of things here. I mean, there were, it was very rare that there were women physicians. Women weren't allowed to access university training in most places. Um, they might have been associated with their husbands or their fathers, or they could be in midwifery. But by this stage, they, they were forbidden to do this, even when they were the ones touching women's bodies. Um, and you know, it kind of depends what area of Europe she's talking about, but because th- there were associations of midwives that always practiced. But then there's also this idea of even when it was women touching women's bodies, the knowledge base came from male authors. Mm. And we do see male physicians and surgeons went on to use the power of the printing press to make their reputations and to accrue, accrue positions of power, really, as authors. Cleghorn mentions a rare exception to this male dominance, and that's Trotta of Salerno. She was an 11th century medical woman thought to be the author of the Trotula, which is a treatise on women's health. And although Cleghorn doesn't mention it in the book we read, it's also interesting to note that in the 12th century, we see another exception to this in Hildegard of Bingen. She authors another text sharing her experience with healing women. But then we have to wait until 1609 for another authoritative text authored by a medical woman to come out. And that's the French midwife Louise Bourgeois. So this access to academic knowledge sharing, medical knowledge, it was nearly an exclusively male domain. Although predominantly midwives and women in the community did much of the manual work caring for women's health. So really interesting points that she's sharing here. Yeah, so interesting. And I love how, I mean, 
because it's me and I love a historical timeline. (laughs) And also it's just kind of so in line with the podcast project. I love how she structured the book from antiquity, then through, you know, the Middle Ages and then up through the Renaissance. And so it just really helps me to frame everything. So I love that you're taking us through this chronology and seeing the different texts. And, And I'm so glad you pointed out that really long gap between, you know, any time that women, like you said, women are doing the work. Women are the ones who know their own bodies and other women's bodies, but they're not writing anything or publishing anything. So, Right. Uh, Another area of of patriarchy to be talked about certainly would be the printing world and culture. Yep. Yep. But then let's move on to, to chapter two. And in this chapter, we start looking at religious doctrine and medical discourse. Both of these claimed that women's bodies and minds were inferior, defective, and dangerous. Women also carried the added burden of suffering painful childbirths, and the narrative was that this was punishment for original sin. As if this was not enough to control women already, Cleghorn now walks us through how the church used this medical idea of female inferiority to show that women were susceptible to channeling demonic forces and committing evil deeds meriting their destruction. And this was just fascinating to me. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes about this because it seems like such a stretch. But as as we know, accusations of witchcraft had a huge impact on the safety of women. So to begin with, she talks about the this quote, the 13th century Italian physician Diascoli wrote that women menstruate every month because they are, by nature, imperfect beings. Medieval physicians and natural philosophers upheld the traditional wisdom that female biology was universally weak and inferior because of its difference to the male ideal. Medical men were putting a new theological spin on the ancient teachings. All human women were daughters of Eve who had to endure God's punishment by submitting to their husbands and suffering the pain of childbirth. But the problem wasn't God, but mortal men who manipulated Christianity's foundational myths to justify society's subjugation of women. Well, here, I might argue a little bit with Claghorn mm-hmm. that, that <laughs> these myths didn't need manipulating to subjugate <laughs> women, but that subjugation was their original intent. But Mm -hmm. I'm digressing a little. Um, (laughs) This sacralization, though, of women's pain not only strongly influenced period perspectives on childbirth, but as she shows us, it had longstanding continuing influence on how medical men perceived and, more importantly, whether or not they treated women's pain. So just to bring this point home a little more, this makes me think of a 17th century French text on what we would now refer to as obstetrics. And in in this writing by the surgeon Guillemot, who was a royal surgeon, he related that a woman experiencing pain during a typical birth was, and I'll quote here, just what was normal as was foretold to her for her sins. She should accept her suffering with patience. And this is advice we see repeated over and over again in obstetric texts. Later, we'll talk about the physicians who experimented on slave women or did total mastectomies. And this is quite a bit in the future, but these medical men were still under the influence of this same patriarchal myth 
that had now become even a sacred myth that women would experience pain and that it was just the natural course of things as was written. So going back to this idea that we opened with, that society viewed, and on some level still views, women's primary role as procreation, Claghorn makes a convincing case that women who deviated from this role or helped others to gain power over their own bodies had to be controlled and stopped, and witch hunts were one form of this control. She explains that as great plagues decimated the European population, sometimes by nearly 50%, and I quote here, she says, women, the very vessels of conception, birth, and new life, had to be scrutinized, regulated, surveyed, and controlled. Men not only had the power to determine how women should live and behave, they also had medical control over women's bodies. And this theme will reappear again later in chapters that come up as Claycorn exposes how medical men vigilantly inspected women for signs of syphilis, although it was often spread by male soldiers, or signs that a woman may have had an illegal abortion. But in chapter two, what Claycorn is doing here is she's tying the scrutiny to witchcraft accusations in, middle, in the Middle Ages. So another quote here, she says, suspicion around women's deviant and demonic potential rose stealthily across Europe, especially through the teachings of Catholic churchmen who upheld the religious and social sanctity of marriage. One such man was Henrik Kramer. So according to Cleghorn, Kramer believed that the devil needed agents on earth to afflict people with evils on his behalf. In order to infect a woman with witchcraft, she must have any one of three specific vices, whether it's infidelity, ambition, or lust. So what Claycorn is saying here, it's really no surprise. Uh, these are just the sort of women that the church and state would want to control and possibly eliminate. Besides some interesting anecdotes about supposed witches collecting men's penises and bird boxes and feeding them <laughs> corn and oats, um, <laughs> the book shows a direct line between witchcraft accusations and women's health. And this is through the treatment of midwives in Northern Europe in the 15th century. So the official regulation and licensing of midwives did not start until much later, for instance, around the mid-1500s in France, midwives functioned as part of an informal network, often trained through an apprenticeship model. University-educated medical men already had marginalized midwives and had begun even taking their place in uncomplicated or what they referred to as natural births, natural being when the child presented by the head first or, to a lesser extent, feet first. Um, but despite this, the vital role that midwives served in preserving women's health, midwives were in a precarious position. Now, Kramer published his ideas, which quickly spread throughout Europe. And referring to his views on midwives, Cleghorn tells us, Kramer crafted a narrative of secrecy and deviance around the practices uh, midwives were doing at childbirth. And at the time, Childbirth was perilous and fraught with dangers. Women and their babies frequently died during labor. Kramer attested that the 
infant death and miscarriage wasn't a natural occurrence, but he said it was the devil working through possessed midwives to slaughter innocents. And among his more tales of witches stealing newborns or drinking their blood, devouring them and offering them to the devil as a sacrifice. With all of this, he strongly implied that any instance of failed pregnancy by a woman attended to by a midwife, this should be suspected as witchcraftery. And abortion, after all, was one of the seven methods of witchcraft. Kramer defined that no one does more harm to the Catholic faith than midwives. And he, he wrote towards the end of his book that midwives surpass all others in their crimes, and their evil is so rife that there is scarcely a tiny hamlet in which one has not been found. Mm. It's, 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 it's very difficult to read this. Horrible. And it's this is a complication, a complicated issue to to quantify. But by most accounts, the rate of maternal and infant mortality in early modern Europe was astoundingly high mm-hmm. during these centuries. Uh, let, well, let's take an early modern married French woman for an example. She would have experienced about an average of five to six pregnancies in her lifetime. And so, if research is correct, it suggests that 10% of labors were fatal. So this would give a woman a 50 to 60% chance of surviving during her reproductive life. My and the, goodness. <laughs> they're not great numbers. Mm. And an infant's risk was even worse. An infant had a two and a half times greater chance of dying than their mother. So mm. why is this important to think about? Well, by Kramer's popular standards, The social and religious authorities must accuse midwives of witchcraft every time a child was miscarried or died in birth. Women and children's lives depended on the childbirth techniques and the medical knowledge of sexual and reproductive health that had been accumulated and practiced by midwives. Without these midwives, the mortality rate would only increase. I just have to say, too, I'm just thinking about, like, living at that time, if I were a woman who was drawn to that, like, to helping mothers give birth safely, it would, that would be a real worry to think, like, I don't, I don't want to risk my life. I feel like midwives were taking their lives into their own hands because if anything went wrong during the birth, they could be accused of witchcraft and put on trial and put to death, Right. So that, I mean, it's just really harrowing and sobering to read that and to think like these women really were risking their lives in helping other women yeah. to give birth. It's, it's very true. And even when witchcraft wasn't the issue, midwives would, could still be accused of what we'd now think of as malpractice. So they mm. would often call their male counterparts when they experience problems just to have to reduce the risk that they would be accused. Oh so this goodness. has always been something that's been difficult for women and women practitioners. Hmm. And Cleghorn goes on to explain that Kramer's book recommended torture as a way to extract a confession. And I won't go into the sadistic procedures she describes that were meant to force women to confess. But eventually, if they were judged to be witches, they were sentenced to flames. 
And Claghorn says that during the 16th and 17th century, approximately 45,000 people were executed for the crime of witchcraft. 80% of them were women, many of whom were over the age of 40. And these women uh, who were accused were typically unmarried, older, poor, or involved in healing and practicing midwifery. So it's it's a, a very sad thing to think about on all accounts, both for the practitioners and for the women they were serving. Mm-hmm. And I'll just end this chapter with one more quote. She says, uh, Cleghorn says, accusing women of witchcraft was a powerful way for social and religious authorities to maintain male dominance and supremacy in their villages and towns. Trying and executing women was a measure to cleanse communities of those who were not performing the marital and reproductive duties assigned to them under patriarchy. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so sad and so infuriating. Oh, goodness. It really is. Well, let's move on to some other subjects. Uh, Yeah, some more cheery news. (laughs) Some more cheery news, exactly. (laughs) Well, chapter three in this book touches on many historical misconceptions about women's anatomy in particular. We've mentioned the uterus, but this this chapter really talks about it quite a bit. This concealed hidden organ, which is the human origin, it's always mm-hmm. figured really prominently within the all-male world of medicine and anatomical study. Most medieval and early Renaissance drawings of the uterus, though, were just a composite. They were composites of human, bovine, and fetal anatomy, and represented Hmm. a synthesis of many diverse anatomical inquiries. Cleghorn describes the Renaissance physician's quest to understand the uterus and the entire female anatomy, and I quote here, as a new frontier to colonize with knowledge. I like that quote. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it was really rare to find female cadavers for dis- dissection. And these these women were often those who had been condemned or were sex workers that had died. So one such cadaver appears in a woodcut on the title page of one of the earliest and most famous anatomy books, and that is Vesalius's Fabrica which is based entirely on dissected human corpses, and it had far more accuracy than any previous anatomy books. And Clayhorn talks about this a little bit. She describes this gendering of medical knowledge figured in this woodcut. What she says is that this woman is splayed open on the anatomist's table before hordes of onlookers. Vesalia's hand points towards her uterus. Her body is diminished to a spectacle of knowledge, theatrically unveiled and meticulously scrutinized by men for men. Midwives and other women healers would have really not had access to dissections such as this. Even though by the 16th century, we see through there were statutes governing midwives, at least in France, and these outlined that midwives were to have access to yearly anatomical lessons, even though they were still barred from university education. This is something they're supposed to have. This knowledge was so vital for their practices and the women they treated. 
And while anatomists and natural scientists had had little access to women's bodies for dissection and research for centuries, this was mainly because of cultural and religious grounds. But we do know that surgeons and physicians did have opportunity both through interventions and through autopsies to be familiar with women's anatomy. And we have several examples of daring midwives, such as Louise Bourgeois, who I mentioned earlier. She developed an early modern networking strategy with the surgeons and physicians in her community. And with these colleagues, she worked to be invited to autopsies and to glean the anatomical knowledge denied to her just because she was a woman practitioner. So we, we also see alongside the, the sadder aspects, we, we see these moments where women were able to make inroads and go out and get the knowledge they needed for themselves and to help each other. What amazing, courageous women these midwives were. And I was going to ask you, because I think I remember from your thesis presentation, didn't you write your thesis on this woman, Louise Bourgeois? I did. She was the royal midwife to Marie de Médicis and Henri IV, or Henry IV in France. And she delivered wow. the future king, Louis XIII or Louis XIII, as well as his brothers and sisters. And with the somewhat fame she achieved from being that royal midwife, she was able to publish a text on midwifery. And she was, you know, sort of that first woman to be publishing again uh, in the 1600s. Hmm. Amazing. That's, that's so cool. Okay. There's just one quote that I wanted to talk about in chapter four, although I will say to listeners, if you do read this book, chapter four contains one of the most interesting stories <laughs> I think I've ever heard. The story of Anne Green was such an interesting story, but we'll let that be a teaser so that you'll read the book. And the quote that I want to share from chapter four and then see what you think about it, Cassie, is this, quote, much of women's everyday care in health and sickness happened in the home practical experience of herbal recipes in wound dressing and fever relief was shared between mothers and grandmothers, sisters and daughters. And I just thought that was really lovely, really beautiful. And it kind of alludes to some things that you were talking about earlier, Cassie, with sometimes this is why they'd be accused of witchcraft, right? Is because women knew about plants and they knew about, you know, what to use to help women, you know, people get better. And that was could sometimes be viewed darkly and dangerously, but it's a it's a beautiful thing that was passed from woman to woman traditionally, right? Right, exactly. Uh, while while there were men such as Kramer looking at it as potions and spells, mm. uh, in fact, it, it was quite different. Physician prescribed remedies at this time often called for expensive preparations from apothecaries who generally guarded their recipes secret. Among themselves, they wrote in Latin only. So between the hmm. physician and, and the pharmacy, this was not something that most women could um, understand and help themselves with. But as Cleghorn shares, women did collect and share tried and tested medicinal recipes that were often based on their kitchen gardens. And they used these to treat their families, their neighbors, or in the case of midwives, their clients. 
And in addition to the sicknesses Cleghorn mentioned, one difference we see by women sharing recipes with each other is that women privilege the practical and the particular needs of other women as individuals. And what do I mean by that? Well, male physicians would often perpetuate that aura of sacredness associated with the pain of childbirth or they would encourage women that it was their patriarchal duty to breastfeed their children. But women practitioners, women midwives, women in the community, they would find recipes that address the needs of the lactating mother who might want to stop her supply, or they shared recipes to relieve a woman's pain in childbirth. They knew that pain. They had experienced it themselves, and they had the experience of what worked in helping other women. So this is what they shared amongst themselves. And it's a a very different thing from what was going on with the male medical community at that time. Hmm. That's so fascinating. It's such a great point. So the next part that we wanted to discuss is chapter five on feeling pain, which is a lot what we just discussed in this previous chapter. But the main point of chapter five is that women's pain was not taken seriously. Um, Even when there is, you know, observable evidence of a physical malady, pain in women was assumed to be exaggerated or that it was emanating from the emotional disturbances caused by the womb, especially when the woman was not childbearing, like we talked about in those examples of ancient Greece. But even like echoed in your experience, Cassie, in your doctor's office, right? That that he thought, oh, are you experiencing something emotional when actually it was physical? And again, I appreciated that you said that's a legitimate question to ask about anxiety. Anxiety is real and important. But for a woman to say, I'm experiencing physical pain, I can feel it in my throat, I can feel it in my lungs, and to have a doctor say, no, I think it's something else. But anyway, um, one of the the main points that we wanted to talk about in this chapter is that women were perceived as experiencing pain differently, not only from men, but differently from each other. And the higher the class of the woman, the higher the social class, and the lighter the skin, the more delicate and refined the woman was presumed to be. And that was, of course, prized as ultra-feminine, which is what a woman was supposed to be. And then the lower class and the darker the skin, then the more kind of hardy and impervious to pain the woman was presumed to be by her doctor or by any doctor, really. And I want to share a quote from the book. Cleghorn says, racist assumptions that black women feel less pain than white women echo insidiously through medical practice today. In the 19th century, with with its focus on social status and sensibility, these assumptions became firmly entrenched. So I'd like to share a passage from the book also that talks about a, a plantation in Montgomery, Alabama, where there was a man who owned a plantation, enslaved African-Americans, and there was a doctor named James Marion Sims, and he treated the people working on the plantations. And so this the slave owner was named Westcott, and this happened in 1845. And Westcott called the doctor, Dr. Sims, to come and attend the childbirth of one of 
the women who was enslaved on his plantation. And her name was Anarcha, and she was 17 years old. So she was in labor, and she was just wasn't delivering. She'd been in labor for hours and hours and hours. And when she was examined by Dr. Sims, he saw that the baby's head had just put so much pressure and done so much damage to basically like all her internal organs, which he called her quote unquote soft parts. It describes that her soft parts were sloughed away by the pressure of the baby's skull. And it seemed that she was hopelessly incurable. And so they thought, well, this woman is going to die anyway, and she's just an enslaved woman. And so the doctor saw that Anarcha had a fistula, which damaged her bladder and, and was causing urine to leak through her vagina, and there was no cure for that. And it was it was very, very common among enslaved women because it's common in very young women where their bodies aren't big enough and developed enough to give birth. It's caused by rape, which was, as we know, common on plantations. And and then as in Anarka's case, it also it can just be caused by again, like a baby with a very large head and being in labor and pushing and pushing and pushing for so long. So what Dr. Sims decided to do was basically do experiments on her because she was, I guess, deemed so unworthy of trying to save her. And he just thought, well, this is perfect. I'll just use her to experiment on. And then he, and, and there was a, apparently a white woman who had similar issues. And so he thought, oh, if I can practice on this enslaved woman, then I'll be able to perfect my technique and be able to use it on, you know, a real patient is I think how he was viewing it. So he then called other enslaved women over, there was one named Betsy, and I'll, I will spare all of the horrible details about the medical tools he was using, but there was an enslaved woman, an enslaved girl, really. She was so young, named Lucy, who was suffering a similar gynecological injury and experimented on these women. And they all developed infections. They all died. And looking at Dr. Sims's notes in his, you know, his medical notes, it's just absolutely appalling the way he describes that their lives were just... They meant nothing to him. They were not human beings, but medical specimens. And I'll just read this quote. To Sims, they were not human beings, but medical specimens, objects used to innovate his procedure and further his professional reputation. Anarcha had been experimented on 30 times, always without anesthetics. The reproductive and physical abuse women like Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy suffered in the fields and homes of plantation owners under chattel slavery was continued by Sims in his backyard surgical hospital, where he colonized their bodies for personal profit and professional gain. And he felt justified in his actions by the dehumanized perceptions of Black women's diminished sensitivity to pain. Yeah, th this is one of the most difficult chapters of the of the book to to read and to process, and and learning about this early treatment of women's fistulas, and and the tr more importantly the, the treatment of these women. 
for those listeners who aren't familiar, fistulas are a tear or an area of leakage that often happens in women between the bladder or anus and or vagina. And it's usually the result of an injury. It could be from prolonged childbirth, um, a medical procedure, or even an infection. But, but these cases uh, surrounding this physician, James Sims, are, are so unacceptable in, in every way. And I think the point that Cleghorn makes here is, is very important, where she says that this, this medical man who their bodies were entrusted to, to, to heal them he colonized their bodies for personal profit and professional gain. That's how Cleghorn rephrases this, how she phrases this. So this image she's using of colonization or appropriating a, a person's body and, and resources for one's own use, that really describes exactly what Sims did. And the fact that these women suffered such excruciating pain at his hands, just as a a method really to perfect it for others who would then have the benefits of some type of anesthetics, makes it all the more disgusting. Okay, well, I think it's it's probably time to move on from pain. (laughs) And, um, I'd, I'd like to go over a few quotes, really, from chapters 10 through 14. Mm-hmm. And in these chapters, we're starting to come back to this ongoing theme again of how certain aspects of women's health are used as an excuse for the surveillance, control, and punishment of women. And in chapter 10, we start with the fight for the right to birth control. And again, I think I mentioned earlier, I really like the way that she's describing what's happening in medical history and or surrounding women's health with what's going on in the women's movement. And this is definitely an area where these two things coincide. So we start to see the legalization of birth control methods in the UK and in the U.S. as well, these two areas, it's really riddled with sexism, eugenics, ableism, racism, and classism. One of the quotes that really gave me pause to think was uh, Cleghorn says that forced sterilization had been legal in the U.S. since 1907. And then again, she goes on, in 1961, Fannie Lou Hamer, who later became a civil, political, and women's rights leader, had been subjected to a radical hysterectomy performed by a white male doctor without her knowledge or consent at Sunflower County Hospital, Mississippi, while undergoing surgery to remove a small tumor in her uterus. 60% of Black women in Sunflower County had been covertly sterilized, given a Mississippi appendectomy, as it's known, in the name of white greed, white social reform, white knowledge. Well, there's a lot to talk about here, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. Um, but I will add in that Cleghorn also retells 
the story of Margaret Sanger, uh, the American nurse, sex educator, and birth control activist, and describes her complicated role in the beginning of reproductive and birth control rights, and how this was so entangled with eugenics as a way to control and regulate women. And I think you covered Sanger's story more in depth mm-hmm. than an earlier podcast. Yeah, we talked about her Two, two of her speeches um, were some texts that we analyzed in an earlier podcast. So if listeners haven't heard those yet, those are really important. And Fannie Lou Hamer is a hero of mine, and I'm writing my master's thesis on uh, women in the civil rights movement, and I adore Fannie Lou Hamer, and I did not know that about her until I read that in this book, mm-hmm. and it like made it made me so angry. It made me cry. I, I, I mean, and I knew that this before sterilization was happening, but I didn't know that that had happened to Fannie Lou Hamer. It's just so awful. It really is to think about a woman going into the hospital for a certain procedure and then being uh, covertly sterilized. And this ha- unbelievable. Right. And so frequently that yeah. that's what's so crazy about this, that it actually yeah. became known as this Mississippi appendectomy. It's really it's awful. Very painful to think about. Yeah. Well, chapter 14 goes on and highlights how sexually transmitted infections became a vehicle for controlling women. And at this time, there were 33 states enforcing premarital screening legislation. And I believe I mentioned this before, that that in the past, medicine was very well aware that soldiers transmitted syphilis. It was known as French disease in many countries because of French soldiers spreading it. But by the 19th century, the spread of syphilis was generally blamed on female sex workers who were framed as deviant hosts, transmitting their sin to innocent, courageous soldiers. Uh, and and so this was yet another way. Women could not even get married without being screened for syphilis and then having to be treated, even though the screening process was frequently incorrect and many women suffered needlessly. But they're, they're being blamed for something that uh, may not have started with them, certainly. Mm-hmm. And finally, I, I would... I want to talk about uh, abortion rights because this discussion really can't end without bringing that up. Cleghorn uh, opines in her writing that abortion rights were a class issue. Women were ending pregnancies regardless of the law, but how much danger this posed depended on their means. So what she's saying here is those women who could afford it would get pills for so-called menstrual blockage, while those who couldn't afford it had to resort to herbal brews, knitting needles, or even worse, until abortion finally became legalized. But as Cleghorn brings out, today abortion rights remain a point of political, cultural, and religious contention. And as we both know, things like Texas controversial abortion law, SB8, it's banning abortion as early as six weeks. Most women don't even know they're pregnant by six weeks. Mm -hmm. And this is an unusual law because it's to be enforced by private citizens, and they can sue anyone who performs or aids in procuring an abortion. 
Because of this new law in Texas, we know that women have been forced to travel out of state for abortions, risking their own lives to manage an ectopic pregnancy because local doctors don't want to risk being sued. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a very current topic that's still being debated, and we're not entirely sure how the Supreme Court is going to handle this yet. But when we're talking about the risk of a woman's own life being in danger, we see laws like this have usurped the ability for physicians to do their job and mm-hmm. save a woman's life without fearing for their own ability to practice their career and calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you'll remember, Cassie, this is like maybe one of the most important projects I've ever done, actually, but um, definitely the most important project to me in the class was when I took on abortion as an issue of, or as a research topic. And But one thing that I didn't cover in that research project, and we didn't cover, I don't think, on our episodes on Roe v. Wade which was really enlightening to me also. So listeners, if you haven't heard those episodes and if you haven't read Roe v. Wade, read it. It's so interesting and enlightening. But what you just pointed out, Cassie, that throughout all time, actually, that it in one sense, it's a class issue. Rich women can find a way to get a safe abortion, right? They can at least whatever the best... Um, method is at the time. You can pay somebody under the table, but a poor woman can't, doesn't have access to that. And so people are getting abortions either way, but it's people who are the most vulnerable in society who are using those like life-risking methods to perform their own abortions. It's just, it's just awful. And when you think of it that way too, that the rich have always been able to afford abortions, they've always been doing it, you know, secretly. But But yeah, the poor people don't have access to it. It's awful. Correct. Okay, well, that brings us to the end. And again, there was so much in the book. I learned so much from this work and am so grateful that I read it. I just want to end with the conclusion of the book and just mention... I just want to mention it because it's an incredibly moving chapter. She, The author talks about the personal circumstances that led her to write the book. And she had struggled for years with terrible pain going from doctor to doctor who didn't understand and sometimes didn't take her seriously. And then finally, after seven years of really life-threatening symptoms, she was finally diagnosed correctly with lupus. And lupus has a gender ratio of nine women to one man will get lupus. And so it's a disease that is still not well enough known. And it falls, again, into that category of is largely a women's disease. And that's why it's not known well enough, right? And so it's just incredibly frustrating. And that's those are the circumstances that led her to write the book. And she ends by paraphrasing Maya Angelou, when a woman tells you she is in pain, believe her the first time. And that meant a lot to me because that has come up for my mom over and over and over again. She's had really well-trained and really well-meaning doctors this whole time, but you know, two of the really problematic, really frustrating elements of her healthcare struggles have been this aspect of mystery 
of like, well, you know, if it's a woman's thing, we don't really understand it. And I looked up migraines. I know migraines don't only occur in women because my, my brother gets them, my nephew gets them. So I know men get migraines too, but migraines occur in 17% of women and 6% of men. So that there's just this frustrating sense with so many of her ailments that they were just still a medical mystery. And then the other problem all along, which is all through this book and Maya Angelou's point is just over and over again in my mom's life too. She would go into a doctor's office and she just, her pain was not taken seriously. And I, I am so glad we talked about how this problem is so much worse and tragically so much worse among women of color. But even my white mom has experienced this over again, over and over again, too, just being talked over, not listened to, not taken seriously in this um, world that still is quite paternalistic in the medical field still. And so she she continues to suffer to this day. But I'm so grateful for the work that Eleanor Cleghorn did in bringing light to all of these subjects. And this is the way that things move forward, right, is understanding them better and I'm bringing them to people's attention. So what was a takeaway or two for the book from the book for you, Cassie? Well, for me, although it's not the focus of the book, Cleghorn really does reveal how male medical hierarchies historically have depreciated women's health work. She even tied it to witchcraft, and we see how men eventually appropriated even the manual work of women's health that midwives were doing. So I think that that is a real takeaway point to to think about why and how that happened and how how things have gradually shifted and changed in our day. Uh, but I think she explains that the history of that very well. Mm. The other takeaway point, well, as part of that takeaway point, we really see that women suffered both as patients and practitioners. So she's showing both, both sides of that story. And then secondly, as I think about these recent changes to abortion law that we just talked about in Texas, it's, it's really uh, a call to all women and a reminder that the fight to call our bodies our own continues. Here, here. Well, thank you, Cassie. That was an excellent last word to leave the conversation on. And I just want to thank you again for sharing all your insights and stories. And thanks for reading this giant book with me and, and talking about it. You were just fantastic. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you to listeners. We are arriving at the end of our chronological timeline. I can't believe it. We started in the Neolithic period, and we ended with a book that was published in 2021. And so this is the second to last book that we'll read on our podcast. Next week, we'll be doing one more book, but it's out of order chronologically. It's the book Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype. And I had two people in the same week tell me it was an absolute must read. So I added it on at the end. And it's by Clarissa Pincola Estes. It was published in 1989. Like I said, it's out of order technically. But honestly, when I read it, I thought this is actually the perfect way to end the season because it will help us do 
the inner work of breaking down patriarchy in our own minds. And also, it's a beautiful bookend, too, because we started with the Neolithic matrifocal symbols and statuettes that were found in from our ancient um, ancestors. And so wrapping it up also with this wild woman archetype and ancient legends that help us access that divine feminine and in, in a more poetic sense, I think is a great way to wrap up. And then that's our last book. But after that, we'll have one more bonus episode. And that will be my husband, Eric, and I are going to go through the whole season and share a quick summary, like a speed round of lessons learned and takeaways from all the books, all the episodes. I think there are 65 texts. So we'll talk about them real fast. So join us for both of those episodes as we wrap up season one next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.